it's a win-win for everyone. The fish is going to live and it's going to live a healthy life. And, and it's about uh, it, it's about sustainable catch and release practices, not just catch and release. It's what is sustainable for the health and long-term survival of that fish. Hello, friends, and welcome to Take Me to the River. Our podcast today is with Andrew McGovern, an avid angler and fishing journalist based in Canberra. Andy's been fishing the New South Wales South Coast, Snowy Mountains, Canberra and Monero regions for over 40 years, and he has a special connection to the Murrumbidgee River where he grew up. Andy's written over 350 articles on fishing and is one of Australia's most recognised fishing journalists. Today we'll be talking about the role anglers can play in caring for and protecting native fish and the waterways they live in. In particular, I'm going to be asking Andy about what sustainable catch and release fishing practices are and how they can be used to minimise harm and maximise the enjoyment of being out on the river. Let's talk to Andy now. Welcome to our podcast today. It's lovely seeing you smiling at me there through the uh, virtual screen. It'd be great to be out on the river, but I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And I wanted to start by asking you about your love of rivers and of fish. Well, thanks again for the opportunity. It's, it's um, you know, it's nothing better than talking about the river and, uh, and fishing and <laughs> you know, the, the great outdoors that we have here in Australia. Uh, look, it wouldn't have been nice to be sitting out on the Bidgee now. It'd be a um, beautiful day outside. And, uh, yeah, with all the water we've had and the rain we've had, the, the river's just looking in absolute mid condition. So, look, my, my connection, I suppose I'm fortunate that... <laughs> I don't know whether you can say it's in your DNA or in your genes, but I, I think that from my perspective, because my dad and my pop and even my great-grandfather, you know, we're a... We're a fourth, well, I'm a fourth, fourth or fifth generation Canberran, so, um, and all fishermen, and all fished for trout and Murray cod and silver perch. Um, you know, back in the early days, even, you know, when, Bur- and we, you know, my relatives have seen Burrenjuk, and I've seen Burrenjuk at, uh, you know, less than a percent full. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we've seen it at 110% sort of thing. So, you know, we're, we're bought up, I was bought up almost as fishing was part of just what you did you know you did it more than uh, it was just part of your life you know I suppose like people get bought up around a, a sport which sport was a big part of my life as well but fishing certainly for me and it was my connection I suppose with and it still is my connection with my dad but you know dad took me to when I was really young fishing rivers like the new Morella and the Goodra Digby uh, obviously the Murrumbidgee um, you know some of the uh, lower reaches of the, the Lachlan River so so many different streams and creeks and rivers of the Murray-Darling system and it's uh, yeah like I said it's almost sort of now just part of my DNA I mean it sounds like a little bit of a throwaway line but it, that's sort of the way you feel about it so yeah, yeah. so I, I just as you're talking there I can just see all the you know the lines on the map of the rivers and how they often look like our veins really don't they um like a yeah. like a, a human's um, you know uh, system. So w- when you're out on these rivers, um, and you said your pop and your granddad were also out there fishing, were you after particular fish, or was it just the experience of being out there? What was it that really connected 
all four generations to going out and fish. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there were so many parts to it. I think um, just a little bit of background on it. I mean, I, um, my, my dad was actually killed in a car accident when I was only 11. Oh. So, um, which is, you know, it was hard when I was younger to talk about it. Now I'm much, much older and I can, you know, like it, it's, and it's something now that I actually um, uh, sort of embrace because the fishing and the, and it's not just the actual, uh, the activity of going fishing, but it's all the other, uh, I suppose, sensory overload that you get when you're on the river, um, you know, so it's not just the, what you see, but what you smell and what you hear and what you can feel, you know, the rocks under your feet, the, the sand in your hands when, you, when you've got a fish or all those things. And because Dad passed away when I was relatively young, but I'd still done a lot of fishing with him up to 11 years old, is that, like I said before, it's my connection with my dad and I can, um, and, it, and it wasn't just one fish, you know, I can, as I mentioned, you know, the Nimrella River, I remember fishing with Dad, catching big brown trout there, back in the, you know, the early, uh, sorry, the late 70s. And then, you know, the, the lower reaches of the Murrumbidgee catching silver perch. And silver perch have probably, you know, been one of my favourite fish for um, since I can remember because we used to go out and, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd tell people that you'd catch 20 or 30 big silver perch. You know, you're talking 35, 40, 50 centimetre silver perch, which are such a rarity these days as we know. Mm. But back when I was growing up, and, you know, fish with dad. So all those things, um, it wasn't just one like part. It's sort of, you know, like I can sort of say, well, fishing the Murrumbidgee catching big silver perch or fishing the new Morella catching brown trout or fishing the lower reaches of the Goulder Digby catching rainbow trout or or even Macquarie perch, you know, that used to come up out of Burrenjuk when they were there. So there's just so many parts to it. But, but now certainly I, I have that. Um, and, and even now, you know, our car accident when, when Dad passed away was like 40-odd years ago now, but I can still so vividly remember the smells and sounds of fishing with Dad. Um, and, you know, and it's funny, you think about the things you do remember, and I remember losing big fish more than some of the big ones I caught, sort of thing, <laughs> um, which I suppose is a great fisherman's tale. You know, it's a bit of a, a cliche for us fishermen. It's the one that got away. <laughs> But they do say that memory isn't just, you know, the thoughts. It is the smells and um, the experience that you have that is really what connects all that emotion inside. So I can totally understand that being back out. You know, it's like people have pilgrimages to special places that they spent time in their childhood. And you, and it's so evocative when you get that, that whiff or that touch or that, you know, that, that memory just connects you. I, I'm really sorry to hear that your dad passed away so young, but what a wonderful treasure trove of memories he supplied you with um, just going out on the river. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And look, I um, it, it, as I said, it's almost like, again, I don't want to sound too corny or get too emotional, but it's almost like a gift that dad left me. Mm. You know, the gift was fishing, but not just fishing. It's actually being on a river and that sound of the rapids and, you know, the, the sound of the birds in the trees and, you know, seeing all the other... And that's one thing that when I go out, and I think why I've been fairly successful as an angler is that it's not just about catching the fish. You know, I love turning over rocks. Even now as a, you know, well into my 50s, I love turning over rocks and looking at the insects and, you know, uh, crustaceans and whatever's there. I'm going, OK, I wonder what, what the fish would be feeding on. So, again, and I've... 
And it's not something dad, I don't actually remember dad saying to me, oh, you know, you've got to do this, you know, or you've got to do that. I just did it, you know, I just picked it up. And it's, yeah, it's look at, what I said, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a corny sort of, I suppose, emotional type thing, but it's almost like that's the, the gift that dad left me. I didn't know when I was 11, when I was 15, even when I was in my 20s, probably. Mm. It wasn't until I started to get older and um, that I started to realise that. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's it, the connection with the river something that's really hard to quantify or put into words. It's it's a range of things. So yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty awesome. And I, you know, for for the people who've never fished rivers, it's or, or you don't even have to fish. Just go for a hike or a canoe or, um, you know, go and sit on a river and just listen to the sounds. Don't worry about just taking the sounds. It's just so, you know, it's you know, it's something to me that I'm just so passionate and feel so. We're so lucky, even in Canberra and Cooma and the southeastern region of New South Wales, we've got so much available to us. It's just fantastic. No, it really is. Oh, look, I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't actually fish, but um, I just like being near the river. And I know there has been some research done that actually shows how our whole bodies respond to water. So, you know, the, the cell makeup apparently changes even and the blood pressure goes down and you actually start <laughs> to get more of that connection. So it has actually been scientifically proven that being near water is good for you, even if it's Lake Burley Griffin or a man-made structure. It just being yeah. around water really, really does does do that to you. So I'm interested, you, you know, you were talking about how you'd fished for silver perch and Macquarie perch, and you actually won a record, an Australian record for catching Macquarie perch. Now, where did that happen? Well, it's actually right here in the Murrumbidgee River, oh. um, running through the ACT. So, yeah, in the early days when, um, when I'm saying the early days, we're talking about the, the early 1980s, um, Macquarie perch and silvers, silvers has sort of started to die off just from my experience fishing. But Macquarie's were quite prolific throughout the Murrumbidgee. Um, cod were a little bit more of a, the Murray cod was a little bit more of a, um, a prize capture because you just didn't catch them as much as what you do now. They've mm. definitely made a, a huge comeback in the last 10 years or so. But, yeah, I, um, I was part of the Australian National Sports Fishing Association answer through the Canberra Fishermen's Club um, affiliation. And, yeah, look, I was fortunate enough uh, as a junior angler, I caught um, several big... Macquarie perch and uh, the answer was all about the size of the fish compared to the size of the line you capture so yeah, you caught the fish on so uh, and there was you know there's a lot of process about to fill in forms and, and stat decks and you had to have uh, you know one of my mates had to be a witness and all that sort of thing so and look I think the, the really cool thing about having those uh, Australian records and I've actually got them in a few line classes is that now the Macquarie perch are totally protected Mm. They're never ever going to get beaten. Not that fishing's a competition because I've always I've always felt it like that. It's 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 me and the fish sort of thing. I've never really considered it as a competition against other anglers. I've never really been that. I, I know there's a lot of comps out there that you know that, that that's what drives a lot of anglers, which is fantastic, and I tip my hats to them. But you know, to me, it was always about like that challenge of of fooling the fish with it, whether it's with a bait or with a lure. Um, you know, to get them to sort of eat it and then, you know, sort of, it was like an adversary having a, a, a competition with a fish. And that sounds a little bit weird and people go, oh, yeah, you, you've, uh, you've, you've obviously had too much sugar on your wheat picks this morning or something, Andy, so you might need to uh, change your approach or, or try something different. But, yeah, look, I, and I still remember then, and I think this goes back to my dad and 
Uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, catch and release and those sorts of things, but Dad always taught me from an early day, and this was in the mid-70s when catch and release wasn't, you know, it was, you know, kill everything. It was kill it and fill it, you know, like it wasn't trendy. It wasn't, you know, there was no such thing as social media and there was very few fishing magazines. But Dad always taught me, you know, you take as much as you need to eat and maybe one for your neighbour sort of thing. So, and that was trout fishing or silver perch. We'd always keep a couple for the table. And I think when I was, we were, my friends and I were catching the, you know, the Macquarie perch, we had a few seasons there in, I think it was oh, 80, 1980, 81, 82. We, we only kept, the only fish I kept were ones that were Australian records. And in hindsight now, I sort of wish I hadn't. But as a kid, you know, you're 13, 14, you catch this huge Macquarie perch and you go, well, you know it's going to be an Australian record. So I might just keep it. And then you've got to go through the process of weighing it and so on. But but we, we caught... You know, there'd be nothing for us to catch half a dozen or a dozen big Macquarie perch in the Murrumbidgee River, and we'd only keep, you know, we'd, we'd rarely keep any of them, to be honest. So we'd, most of them we just let go, but then obviously, you know, the red fin got in and the virus and, and all these other things that were just detrimental to the fish, and they disappeared, and I haven't seen, you know, I think a lot of us haven't seen a Macquarie for years and years, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I've seen um, sort of juveniles. I haven't seen a big one, I must say, because um, uh, we've got a spot up on the Murrumbidgee and they're released in there as not fingerlings, but sort of a bit bigger than that to give them a bit more of a fighting chance. But yeah, the Maccas are really, as you say, they're protected now. Um, and we're really hoping to keep the Upper Bidgee um, free of redfin. We're not quite sure how we'll, how we'll go with that for... For people listening, that the redfin fish actually carries a virus called the EHN virus, and it affects the macas really quite badly. So we're really working to try and keep redfin out of the reach. Um, what about silvers? You were saying that there used to be a lot of silvers there because I, I don't think they're in the Upper Bidgee anymore. Is that is that right? No, uh, that's yeah. We used to catch uh, uh, certainly not as many silvers as there were. There was a lot more macquarie's than there were silver perch. Um, but the silvers we tended to get down around Burringer, quite upstream from Cavern, and the you know the moving upstream there to uh, in that that's that stretch of the Murrumbidgee River. Um, and, and look, we got some massive silver perch out there as well. You know, like fish that were you know upwards of three kilos. You know, you sort of talk for, for the old school people listening. You know, you're talking six, seven pound silver perch, which are huge and. They're, they're a little bit more common, the big silvers in some of our impoundments, but as you mentioned, they're all stocked in the impoundments. These were wild, you know, wild fish back in those days. And as I said, particularly fishing around um, the top end of Burringer Dam, you know, we, there'd be nothing to catch, you know, a dozen big silvers in a, um, you know, in an afternoon. And, and all those fish would obviously migrate up the river um, at different stages. So... Yes, it's just such a shame. But I think one of the positives over the last... I'm actually on long service leave at the moment from my real, from my real job and undertaken a fair few trips out west. And we, we've actually seen a lot of silver perch in a few different... And, and I don't know where they've come from, whether, they were, uh, whether they've come upstream from dams or they've come out of farm dams, to potentially with all the floods we've had over the last two years. But not just little pockets. We've, we've found them in quite, you know, kilometres and kilometres of river, different stretches of, and they were 100% silver perch, you know, once you see them, you know, look, you know, you think you're hallucinating when you see a fish follow your lure in and then you go, hang on, that wasn't a carp and it definitely wasn't a cod. Uh, and then once you got a closer look, so look, it's, it's great. They've definitely, whether they're making a comeback, whether it's the, 
Uh, the quality of the water's improving. I'm not sure what the... I'm certainly not a scientist and, and don't have that. I'm just, a, uh, you know, just love my fishing and being out there sort of thing. But, yeah, it's, they're definitely making a comeback to silvers from what I've seen. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. I mean, in, in other work that I do, I know we have been providing some environmental flows to try and um, assist some of those fish to spawn mm. and migrate. So, and, of course, all these big floodwaters... Um, we know that the, the floodwaters, although they cause damage, they can also bring with them just this magnificent store of chemicals and nutrients that no amount of man-made environmental flow can actually do. So maybe that's that's having something to do with it as well. Um, it, it sounds to me like different fish have personalities. Is that right? Like, can you say, oh, the mackers are like this and the silvers are like that and the trout are, you know? <laughs> A good friend of mine uh, used to work for South Australia Fisheries and they had some big Murray cod uh, in tanks that they used for their brood stock and he was 100% convinced that some of the cod had personalities. He yep. said they, some, they're like dogs. They actually, you, they, he, he, and he was telling me these stories and one, one particular one I'll tell you that he used to come in and it would follow him around the tank. Whereas another one of the big ones, uh, big females, would just sulk in the corner, and you know she was, she had a particular name that I won't repeat on this on this podcast. But then there was another big one, and, and she was just a real like come up and just follow him around, like walk, like walking the dog around the tank. But uh, interesting you say that because I'll just digress a minute. A story about a, a cod that I caught in the Mongo River years and years ago, probably in the early nineties, and. Um, I caught him three nostrils because when I actually caught him, or her, I'm not quite sure, my hook went straight into its into his snout. Um, and when I pulled the hook out with the barb, it actually gave him like a third nostril. Oh. Um, anyway, long story short, the first time I caught this fish, he was about 60 centimetres. I caught the same fish in the same hole for seven years straight. At different times of year, different parts of that hole, and he gradually got bigger and bigger. But the last time I released him, he was in a low 80, about 83 centimetres, I think. So over the years, and then obviously whether he got caught by another angler, died of natural causes, another big cod has killed him, or I'm not sure. But this fish had a personality. And honestly, I would catch this fish, and it was almost like, it sounds it's going to sound really weird to people listening in, but... <laughs> just would not flick or play up or anything. I'd literally lie there, I'd pull the hooks out, hold it in the water just for a second to let the water flow through the gills. I never pulled him out of the water, I never took a photo of this fish, let him go. Every time I did the same thing, just did not play up. So anyway, <laughs> he, he was, so three nostrils was one of my, uh, yeah, a, a real, has a real place in my heart, that fish. Yeah, uh, and the fact that each year you caught him again and again and again. <laughs> it was so cool. The first time I did it, so that, well, the second time I caught him, when I, I, I was sort of not quite sure, but there's a little bit of a scar tissue on his, right on the top of his snout, and it sort of got bigger and bigger. It was yeah. almost like a pimple. Yeah. So I knew it was the same fish every time, and it was just like, you know, grew sort of three or four centimetres each year. Great condition, you know, like it was fantastic. So it was really, yeah, a really good memory I've got of that that particular part of the Mullumbo River. Yeah, for sure. And so the practice that you were using then is catch and release. So you, can you tell a bit, tell me a bit more about how that actually works and why it's something that's so important to you in your fishing practice now? I think the good thing, the first thing I'll say about catch and release is it's so 
much more part of our culture in recreational anglers. In, in, the, in the recreational fishing community now, there's definitely been a quantum shift from the, as we are talking about before, the early days of like everything you catch, kill it. Now it's it's complete a complete flip, like a 180 degree change where everyone is really wants to practice catch and release. They just want they're happy to catch a you know take a photo and let the fish swim away. Particularly our native fish, you know, particularly Murray cod, golden perch. Um, so I, I think think the key is is that there needs to be a little bit. And I don't want to sound facetious or, but there needs to be a bit more education because a lot of people try to do the right thing but they just don't understand mm. uh, i suppose the biology and the makeup of a, of a fish or, the, or they they do but they don't think it through and how they can actually them handling a fish can actually hurt hurt them or or, mm. or potentially injure them in a way that yes they might swim off but you've injured that fish and they're not going to be able to feed properly or they're potentially going to be exposed to um, you know, viruses or, or uh, worms or what, whatever it may be, or some sort of bacterial growth on them if we don't do the right thing as anglers. So, you know, all the key things that we've talked about um, in the previous podcast we've sort of we've done, and, and many anglers now, or most anglers do know, you know, the key message is, you know, minimise the fish's time out of the water. Um, you know, keep the fish wet as long as possible. Wet your hands because the fish have a protective slime. So you, if you've got dry, hot hands and you touch a fish, you can potentially remove that protective slime off them. Also support the fish's body weight. Um, and this is a big one where a lot of people just tend to put their hands up the gills of a fish. You know, in the old days, not so much now. Hold it up for a photo and, and, and you hang it up. And basically what happens when you do that particularly on murray cod and, and even big golden perch because there's a couple of things if you don't support their body i mean the first thing you remember fish live their whole life in water so their body weight is supported they don't have legs they've got fins so they've got nothing to support their body weight so we have to if we're going to hold them up for a photo because we want to be you know we want to put them on our share them with our friends and put them on our social media pages and whatever then we've got to support the fish's body weight. And that means putting your hand under their belly um, and, and, and holding them. If we don't do that, what happens is that the first thing is, is their stomach cavity can tear inside, um, which if you think about that from a human perspective, it's a, it'd be a horrible way to die. Um, they're not going to die straight away and they'll swim off, but you've torn that stomach cavity so the fish can't eat correctly. The other thing is, is you can actually tear the cartilage and damage um, fish's jaw or around their um, their ability to or the back of their gills where they actually need that and, and cod and golden perch need that their ability to actually catch their prey but not only catch it but also to digest it and eat it so if we don't support the fish's body weight potentially doing damage to the fish's ability to to feed and hunt but also the fish's ability to, do, to digest the food so we've got to support their body weight and support it all the time um, the other obvious ones are, you know, you don't want to be touching their eyes or their nose or, you know, around their mouth or their cheeks or their gills. They're all very sensitive organs. It's a little bit like us, you know, you don't want to be getting poked in the nose or the mouth or the eye or in the ear. It's, it's, it's irritating and can cause damage. So I think people need to think more about that sort of thing. And the other one, the other fine one is obviously, 
you know, we can talk a little bit more about using, you know, if, you, if you're going to land a fish with a net, use an EnviroNet. Don't use the old, those green coarse uh, nets because it's just like sandpaper. And it, it'll cut through a fish's fin, uh, it'll cut through its tail, removes protective slime, uh, removes scales. And again, it's like, it's like a human, I suppose, getting really badly sunburnt or uh, getting a bad graze when you fall on the concrete. Um, that's the sort of what we're doing to the fish. The fish will swim off. It won't die straight away, but because you've removed that, we've removed that protective slime, we're potentially exposing that fish to getting bacterial growth that might take months and months and months to grow, but it's a horrible thing to think of that you've actually tried to do the right thing. Um, so, and that, and that leads me to the final point that's a real bugbear of mine at the moment and something I really want to push myself is that a lot of people these days now and it's around the protective slime of the fish of our native fish is they pull them straight up onto the hot hot sand or onto a rock or put them onto a deck of a boat that's got either you know a hot piece of carpet or in winter all these guys catching these massive Murray cod in the impoundments they put them on a frosty deck that's going to remove the slime and Getting back to the one on the, uh, particularly around hot sand, as I see a lot of people drag their fish up onto the sand, do the right thing, you know, they hold them up, they, they support the body weight, they wet the hands, they put them back in the water, and the fish is half covered in dirt and mud and, and river, river gravel and so on, and they release the fish. And I've spoken to a few people about this, and they go, oh, it'll just wash off. It won't wash off. The, 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 the protective slime is sticky, and the fish don't have hands or the ability to remove the slime themselves, uh, to, to remove the, the rocks and that that have stuck, or the gravel that's and mud that's stuck to their skin. So we need to remove that. We need to put them in the water, um, wet your hands, and then just gently remove all that sand from off the fish and before you release them. Don't release them covered in sand. Um, mm. So you look at, it sounds like a lot, but I think 99% of people really are trying to do the right thing and I think we just it's just about a bit more education getting the message out there and I think we'll be able to you know we'll, we'll have a sustainable fishery for, for years and decades to come. I mean it, it actually makes a lot of sense if you put yourself in the position of the fish no one wants their eyes poked or someone to stick something you know into them or plop them on the ground and I know I've seen so many photos of fish being held up with a hook in their mouth and now because I know what's happening to them it can be quite distressing because people will hang them there for quite some time while they have their photo so what you're actually saying is bring them in but keep them in the water put them in the net if you need to or just hold them um, sort of almost uh, a bit like a baby but you're cuddling them underneath really to get your photo yeah. and then putting them yeah. back in yeah that's you you are that's like i think that's a great analogy you know treat them like a baby you know mm. treat them with treat them with care you know mm. people can be a little bit rough and and i think like you said it's the people just i think anglers out there got to think about how would you want to be treated mm. you know if you're lying in the water and you're a fish and it's the thing and it's just that changing your, their thought to thought process to say okay fish don't have legs they have to have water to support their body mm. they have they don't have hands to wipe the dirt off them so we've got to do that for them if we want to you know get that hero shot and look fantastic on our instagram page you know we've got to do that and, and look a, a lot of people now i mean can't, 
it, it's, a, it's a very changing culture. I mean, currency these days seems to be how many likes you can get on a, on a photo, not just get out there, which is... I, I'm struggling, though. I just think I'm just a little bit too old school. I'm struggling to understand that, but, you know, why not just... Get, but, but get the photo. Get the photo of the fish, but protect the fish. So you can do it all. You can. It, it's a win-win for everyone. The fish is going to live, and it's going to live a healthy life. And and it's about uh, it, it's about sustainable catch and release practices, not just catch and release. It's what is sustainable for the health and long-term survival of that fish. Mm. And look, the, the the love of Murray cod and native fish is just amazing now. You know, people really and and there's a lot of self-policing out there you know I've, I've heard people talking to other anglers saying oh no you should be doing this or don't do that and a lot of the people are almost apologetic and like you said you know that example you gave where people holding fish up by the gills and you think well you know that that fish is not going to survive because you know you've just torn all the cartilage in its jaw it's not going to be able to feed properly mm. um so yeah as you said you know treat it like a baby in the water cuddle <laughs> it cradle it um keep it in the water as long as you can you know, even other little things like if you're fishing during the day, avoid direct sunlight on the fish. You know, when it's out of the water, it's always got it's always got water. So all the water molecules going around the fish, it never ever has direct sunlight on it. Not many fish like direct sunlight. So, you know, if you can, you know, use your body to shade it, uh, keep in the water. It's, look, it's just a little thing, but um, you know, if it's me, you sort of think, well. In the end, you want Murray Cod to be around for another 50, 60, 80, 100 years, you know, so that, you know, our, our, our next two or three generations can, can enjoy them as much as what we can. And we've got to do that given our, you know, our population explosion and how much pressure we're putting on the, on the rivers and how many more people are recreational fishing. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's get, we're getting there. We're getting there. Just a little bit more education. So it sounds like, yeah, and, and I, I agree with you. I think I've seen a real shift in people understanding the value and importance of native fish, which is really good. And now it's the next bit of how do you actually, as you say, have a sustainable catch and release program. And I know that you've been working on some videos to that end, actually, to send out to recreational fishers. Um, what's that involved? And, and did you get some beautiful fish along the way? Oh, we've got some. I've got some fantastic fish, but it's uh, it's one of those things where, um, yeah. So we, we, we're definitely working um, on putting together some educational uh, videos to release on social media, just just to explain to people. But not only explain that in theory, but try to actually demonstrate with with some short DVDs. So we, we, or videos. We don't want to make them too boring, um, but just actually showing people so here's the theory but actually here's the bit putting it into practice well we've got some great fish but i'm i tend to rush things a little bit so some of the bigger bigger cod i've got so i've got some cracking fish you know some 80 90 centimeter cod oh, now wow. and, uh, yeah some some beauties that we've you know we've sort of haven't really got the exact footage i want but it's getting very close so yeah, and I, um, we're getting close to finish finishing these and then hopefully we'll be able to release them in the next month or, or six weeks or so. Oh. Um, and, and look, we've got some, I've actually got some footage of some monster fish as well. Uh, we're going to try to, we'll need the, uh, I suppose, the social media gurus to be able to use their creative genius to put this all together because it's a bit of a hodgepodge at the moment. We've got lots of footage. Uh, but yeah, it, it's... It, coming along really nicely and I think it'll be really valuable to the to the community and to the to the recreational fishermen but also 
I think proving to, uh, not proving, but demonstrating to other uh, organisations and other groups that, you know, recreational fishermen are, are actually good for the, for the river environment. They're good for the ecosystem because they're out there helping police it from the, from the minority of people doing the wrong thing or, or trespassing through, you know, farmers' properties or, you know, and, and, and hassling wildlife and, and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think there's some real benefits for us to uh, get these, these uh, videos out and shared. So, yeah, I'm, I'm getting close. I'm getting close to finishing them. <laughs> well, it just sounds to me like um, the videos, it, it's that whole thing, isn't it, about seeing is believing um, because it's often really hard from, you know, you read something and you go, oh, okay, that sounds fair enough. But when you actually see it, it just really helps you go, oh, that's what he means when he says, you know, use a lip gripper. I mean, I, was, I had to look up what a lip gripper was when someone told me what a lip gripper was. And it's a special thing that grips the lip of the fish as you get the, um, the hook out. But, um, yeah, I have to look all these things up. And once I look them up, I go, oh, that's how it works. So it sounds like these videos are going to provide people with that really easy to access aha moment of what it actually means. Yeah, and I think you're dead right, and I think that's what we want to target. My idea is we want to target at people who have just first started fishing and they might catch their first Murray Cod, but also to those, you know, hardcore sports fishermen who have caught plenty of Murray Cod and maybe could do just tweak their, their catch and release techniques a little bit just to, you know, give the fish that little extra percentage chance of survival or minimise the harm and stress on the fish. And that's the thing. It's not just injuring a fish, but it's also, you know, the, the unseen stress that we potentially put on a fish. So, mm. And that comes down to minimising, you know, their time out of the water and, you know, keep them wet and get your photos really quickly. Leave the fish in the water while you set your camera up or leave the fish in the water while you call over your, your mate to come and get the photos of your, you know, your prize capture sort of thing. So... Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good thing, and I think it's something that will be a valuable resource for, like I said, for the recreation community. And look, it's not not just for native fish. You know, I think that the same can apply if you've caught a big flathead down the coast, or um, you know, you caught a big brim that could be 25, 30 years old, or an Australian bass. You know, one of those you know magic bronze warriors that we get in our you know eastern flowing rivers. You know, running down. You know, you catch a big bass. It's the same principles. You know, it's the same principles. Don't hold the fish up. Support its weight all the time. Keep your hands wet. Minimise its time out of the water. They're all simple messages, but uh, and like I said, it's it's really pleasing and, and quite uplifting to see people doing the right thing, you know, and they're on, on their Facebook or Instagram pages, sort of thing. So yeah, it's great. <laughs> and I think it is actually really important to acknowledge when people are doing the right thing because certainly along our rivers, you know, we do tend to play the blame game and it's something that at the river restoration center we we say we're not blaming anyone people aren't the problem they can be part of the solution because all yeah. people actually want to try and do the right thing it's knowing what that you know right thing is um so yeah well for anyone listening those videos will be available on andy's um facebook page as well as the river restoration center and our Pinterest site and we'll put some links at the bottom of um, the Take Me to the River podcast so you'll be able to find that. I wanted to just um, take a little bit of a tangent, I suppose, but you, you've talked a lot about how being along the river makes you feel. And for us, you know, with our work, we actually see a lot of the rivers are quite degraded and the upper Murrumbidgee, as you would know, only gets a, at most about 
four to six percent of the flow that it used to because so much of it is held up in Tantangara Dam. So what what have you noticed when you go out on the Murrumbidgee River? Has it changed a lot, not just in terms of the fish you catch, but in the way it looks? Oh, absolutely. It, it's changed immensely. And I think, I think you made a really good point just before about people are part of the solution. They're not the problem. I think what, just my experience, and I, I, obviously this is just my view, is that I think now a lot of, uh, not, not all, but a lot of um, landowners, um, a lot of governing bodies who manage the, the, river, the rivers, the national parks, the state parks, um, is that people are part of the solution. You know, education and, and just locking people out doesn't, doesn't solve our problem. It doesn't solve the problem. But I think what I've found, uh, well, not what I think, I know what I've witnessed in, and experienced over the last few years is how, um, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think for the right words, but how the landowners now really want to protect the river. They understand how, how much of a crucial resource it is. Doesn't affect, doesn't help the flow. Obviously, that's some some um, bigger bodies uh, up upstream that, that we can't do it about when we talk that we don't have a, as much control about. Potentially, you know, there can be pressure through different groups, um, and you know, and it's not just the fish that need the flow. As we know, it's just far more than than the fish. Um, but the, the landowners now, I've noticed a lot of them are keeping their stock off the rivers. They're fencing it off to protect them. Um, I, I've, I've experienced over the last few weeks, to be honest, um, landowners as we've been going in and we've had, you know, we've been given permission to have access and we're to stop and have a chat to them and see how things are. And, and they, they've said to us, you know, if you happen to catch any Macquarie perch or, or silver perch, let us know because, we, you know, the fisheries people have asked us to, you know, it's, a, it's an indicator. Well, if you see any platypus, they're all, uh, if you see any Murray River crays, they're all indications of the uh, health of the system. So it, it, it has changed greatly from the old days where everything was locked up. You know, you'd be walking along a river and all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's cattle in the river. Uh, and everything downstream has just been... You know, it's muddy and it, I, I think the other thing that, and this is a hard one for me to comment on, but just one that I haven't noticed as much and I don't know if it's a direct effect, but the pesticides and fertiliser that used to go into the river. Mm. Um, I, I remember a couple of years on the on the Murrumbidgee in particular where we, we had a couple of really good trips where we used to canoe down the Murrumbidgee. We'd get dropped off at one point and then picked up four days later uh, it was a hard trip. I don't. I'd be, I'd be too old. I couldn't do that sort of thing now. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think my body would handle the, the four days canoeing and river camping. But we used to catch a lot of fish, and you could tell the years when they'd been uh, obviously sheep and a lot of the livestock were able to get down onto the river, and then with the pesticides, and the poor fish were covered in you know different like ankleworm and sores, and mm. and it, it was just horrible. But then within a cup, you know, you did get a good bit of rain, get a bit of flow. Uh, obviously, all the fertilizer had been washed off the, you know, the, the top part of the soil um, level, sort of thing. At that, that so, and the fish were back in amazing condition. They're just, they the Murray cod's resilience is just mm. is incredible. The way we've treated them over the last fifty or sixty years, for, and for them to still be so uh, prolific compared to what they were is just amazing. You know, and if we do the right thing, you just 
you know, the, the, the mind boggles at what it could be like, you know, yeah. what it could be like. You know, I mean, really... that, that, that's just music to, to my ears because, of course, you know, I've been working in this industry for 20-plus years talking about the, you know, the benefits of restoring rivers. And, and I agree. I think the, there is a much greater level of understanding and awareness of what a healthy riparian zone, for want of a better word, you know, the riverside vegetation can do for what's in the stream. And, and I really like the way you talked about a system because to my mind, we really need to see ourselves as part of that system. And when you're describing you know, anglers being out on the river, they're our eyes and ears, you know, they're out there seeing this. They can report back and say, look, you know, it, that has improved since those stock have been, you know, um, fenced out or actually passing on. Like I, I know that it's so much more effective when an angler talks to another angler rather than someone like me from the, you know, Australian River Restoration Centre comes and tells them, you know, this is the right thing to do. So yeah. I think that that power of um, networks and using your own networks and and really sort of um, making the sort of science that we now know or the practice that we now know, just just making it sound reasonable and understandable for people who are out there doing their thing and who might not necessarily interact with the likes of, you know, an official government body or anything like that. Yeah, I, I, I agree totally. And I think it's, um, and it's not, I was going to say it's peer pressure, but it's not peer pressure. I just think it's um, a better, I always, I always look at recreation anglers as a community, mm. as part of the community, like you said. So, so there is a community of recreational anglers, but there's also a community of a lot of other users of the rivers. So people who love canoeing and kayaking and just hiking, you know, like people just love being on the river. Like it's just, it's not just fishermen. I think, like you said, if we can all understand it's a resource to share, but not only share, we want it to be a fertile, healthy system. And and when you talk about that riparian uh, zone, you know, a lot of a lot of anglers I know think of that as the, you know, like up to the high water mark, but all those little catchment streams that run in, they're all part of that riparian zone. So it might be potentially kilometres off the actual river, but that little creek that runs in, that can have an effect on it. And I think getting back to what we were saying is that yep, the river dirties up, there's no doubt about it once we have rain, but it clears much, much quicker. Like, and it's been running clear, which is quite unusual. It's not something, I mean, I know we've been in a, you know, previous to probably, what was it, February, March 2020, when the drought sort of broke. Um, the river would run, like, quite dirty, but now it's running clear, and it's almost like, you know, we're, whether it's all the practices undertaken by landowners and, and, and organisations like yours that are just really the message finally getting through and it might have taken a couple of decades but i think the, the the key too is let's not lose that now let's not let let's not be uh let's not rest on our laurels let's not be um what's the word sort of comfortable where we're at let's mm. let's make it even better let's let's make fishing even more sustainable let's get more people out on the river because obviously we need to be careful you know too many too much foot traffic we know you know humans are no better than hard-hooked animals like sheep and cattle and, and horses and so on. But, you know, if we do the right thing and we're smart about it and we don't wade through the water too much or walk through swampland, then there's, there's, we really can make it flourish even further. I mean, who knows? You know, like, we don't, don't want to make some grandiose sort of statements here and say it could be back to what it was like in the, you know, the 1920s and that. But, 
let, you know, you've got to aim high. You, you, you know, you set your bar high because eventually you might just hit that. So I, I think we, you know, we're getting there, and there's some real um, the improvements over the decades that I've fished it have been incredible. Really, oh, that's fantastic to hear. And look, I'm all for setting um, bars that are pretty high because humans respond well to a challenge, and and they also respond well to being feeling that they're part of something bigger. Um, so thank you so much for all the all the work that you do in connecting with anglers and talking to them about this and um, you know our native fish and our rivers. I just wanted to end to ask you if there is a special stretch of river that is the best place for you to go whenever you need to recharge your batteries. You don't have to tell us the exact location, but is there well, one that you go back to time and time again? I. I it's a loaded question. You know I can't tell you. <laughs> that's like that's just breaking the cardinal sin. <laughs> I thought it might be. <laughs> it's like when you take photos, you know, for, for your Instagram page. You know, you don't ever take photos with the river in the background. You know, you turn around so that it's a very generic background with maybe a she oak or a couple of. And you don't even get any distinctive rocks in the. So background. now we're getting the real dirt on how this is that's done, that's isn't it? <laughs> Protecting well, your sources. Yeah, you've only got to look at the smart the smart people out there who know. Because again, you know, like everyone, to, to me, catching a big Murray cod, there's a lot of effort goes into it. It's not just, you know, read a story in a magazine, look on Google Earth. Okay, I'm going to go there. It takes a lot of work and a, and a lot of time. And even once you get that, you know, get down there, you, the fish going to be biting if you got the right lure sort of thing. So. Do you see how I'm really doing a good job here of digressing away from you? Well, no, you know, you know what I'm hearing is I'm hearing a journalist protecting their sources, you know. It's, <laughs> I can't possibly reveal my sources. I respect that. that. That's absolutely fine. I won't push you any more on that. I will, I will say, and it's a generic, you know, I don't want to say I sound like a politician, but um, it's a very generic answer. But what, honestly, there, there are parts of the Murrumbidgee that, that I just love to fish. There's particular stretches on, on friends' properties that I've got. But look, there's there's places that I haven't I, I go back to occasionally that I fished when I was in my teens and and you sit on the rock and you think, well this rock was here 40 years ago. Mm. And it's the same rock that I caught, you know, like a, a nearly a two kilo Macquarie perch that I can now catch a you know 80 centimetre Murray cod on sort of thing. Well there's another spot that so there's all little areas. I mean, even some of the, um, you know, the local lakes have got some, you know, growing up in Canberra, you know, I fish Lake Jindera a lot. And there's some, some spots around Lake Jindera that, that hold, a, you know, a, a, I suppose a, a favourite spot for me to fish. Don't tell too many people that or, and I won't ever sort of, I'll sort of hide the location. But, you know, it's not just one area, I suppose. Every, every part, you know, even Lake Jindabyne and uh, up in the Snowy Mountains and, and part of those um, those little creeks and rivers that run into the Threadbow and the Snowy and that, yeah, it's all special memories and it's a different environment to, you know, fishing the Murrumbidgee or the Lower Lachlan River, um, wherever it may be. So, yeah, it's... So, anyway, I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna politely uh, decline the answer <laughs> you're... <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. It was beautifully dodged and uh, that's okay. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, you so much, so much for, for joining us today. I've really, you know, the conversation's been terrific. And for anyone listening, um, I promise we will provide some links to other work that Andy's done. He's, he's written prolifically. Um, look him up and you'll be able to read some of his wonderful stories. So, Andy, until next time, thanks again. And I hope you have a terrific rest of your afternoon. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. See ya.